Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Amanda Bullock, Director of Public Programs at Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This episode is part of a special three-episode podcast series exclusively for Portland Book Festival 2022. This year, we feature conversations about swimming, cooking, and music. Cookbook writer Naomi Duguid has taken food lovers to many corners of the globe in books like Taste of Persia and Hot, Sour, Salty, Sweet. In her new cookbook, The Miracle of Salt, she invites readers and cooks on a very different journey, a deep dive into one amazing ingredient, salt, and its essential role in preserving, fermenting, and transforming food. Duguid is in conversation with Portland's own Liz Crane, author of Dumplings Equal Love and co-founder of the Portland Fermentation Festival. Naomi, huge congratulations on your beautiful, informative, and transportive book, uh, The Miracle of Salt. It's just been published, and it is hot off the presses. How has it been getting to be out in the world and promoting it and doing signings and talks and events in person? It's, it's pretty amazing. You know, I think a lot of us, um, I certainly did lost certain kinds of reflexes. Um, and so from the before times, is how I think of it. And it seems like longer ago than sort of two years that that, we, you know, things stopped, or two and a half years. And so it's really warming. It's, it's extraordinary to be back in touch with people. And I'm really grateful for Zoom because I'm really grateful for all the, the conversations and the connections and the connections over larger distances that have been built in this time. But man, there is nothing like being in a room with people. It is so extraordinary. So I've just, I'm in the early stages of book tour, um, but it's, it's really, uh, it's just lovely. And it's very energizing. You know, people say, aren't you exhausted? Because, you know, book tour also gets a little I mean, this is a first world problem, but it gets a little tight sometimes. No, it's energizing. It's absolutely wonderful. Well, we're so grateful to get you for the Portland Book Festival and for the Archive Project. So thank you so much for doing this podcast. Well, well it's an honor to be, you know, to be invited, to be included. It's really great. Yeah, I'm, I'm delighted. So just to give a little summary for our listeners, um, since the book has just come out, there are three primary sections in The Miracle of Salt. There's the salt larder, which is sort of a technique section with some recipes. So you have flavored salts, you have ferments, you have salt preserved lemons, and with all sorts of foods that have been developed over centuries, thanks to salt. So that's one section. The next section is from larder to table which is a conglomeration of more modern salt inclusive recipes, ranging from condiments and sauces to soups and sweets. And then the third section of the book is salt tech and salt geography, which digs a little deeper into salt chemistry and the geography and harvesting of various salts. And my question for you is which one of these three sections would you say was most rewarding in terms of the researching of the book? And I'm sure it's hard to pick favorites, but I'm just curious. Well, it's really interesting because it took me a long time to figure out the structure of the book. So I started out thinking, okay, I want to do, I want to have some, some salt history, but I don't want it to be a only, I don't want it to be a salt history book. I want the history to sort of be informing some stories. And 
I really, I guess I would say it's the salt larder that's the heart of the book because it's, yes, there's recipes for, for flavored salts and for, you know, salt preserved chilies and for kimchi and, you know, miso and things, but also it's, it's about, you know, salt cod, for example, things that there aren't recipes for making it, but it, these are other salt preserved ingredients. And as I worked on it, I mean, I guess the salted meats like the uh, duck breast prosciutto, for example, was my entry point into uh, salting meats and basturma, which is a, an Armenian preserved beef that you salt it, you it, it dries out, you hang it, and then you can eat it sliced. It's delicious. Those felt like taking control of something that had always been in the hands of an expert, you know, go to the butcher shop or the charcutier and ask for your, your preserved whatever, or your sausage. And this was, it was just really kind of enabling. Um, and so the simple things, which, I mean, nothing is simple at one level because everything is sort of magical, but on the other hand, it's all simple. It's salt plus food. Salt draws the water out. Salt enables then the back kills the bacteria in that sense. Give, creates an environment that the bacteria can't survive in, and then you can do other things to your basic ingredient to flavor it. So kimchi and sauerkraut are the same thing, except the kimchi has all these other flavorings in it. But in both cases, you're salting your cabbage or your whatever, and then and then letting it sit in the brine that happens when the salt draws the liquid out of the cabbage. And bingo, you have a food that you can eat all winter, you can store for years, actually. And you think, well, this is just completely, this is a revolution. It, in, in other words, we're in this era, in this modern era, we buy these things. But we've even sort of forgotten about how wonderful they are. Um, because, you know, we have things, we have food fresh all winter. But these were life-saving. These were, these were the way people survived and they're brilliant. And so to actually say, it's like, you don't have to make all the jam you eat, but it is an amazing thing when you take fresh fruit and, and people are more familiar with that because we've kept uh, a habit or more people have kept up with um, making jam, I think, than with the idea of salt preserving. And so, cause a jam is sort of a luxury. Salt preserving is necessity. And once necessity is no longer knocking at the door, you know, once we can buy, and once we have refrigeration and so on, we're not we're not obliged to do salt preserving. But when you do do some, whatever it is, salt preserved lemon, whatever, you bring this whole possibility of flavor into your into your kitchen, into your life, so that you know, if you're, I like improvising in the kitchen, so I can just reach as I did last night. I was cooking some kale and whatever it was squash chopped and I thought well how can I make this more interesting and near the end of it it simmered for a while the kale takes a while to get beaten into shape um and I had some garlic in there but I I uh, added some chopped preserved lemon salted lemon and suddenly it lifted it into this whole other place and it was and the the people who were eating it said this is really delicious but it's just kale and squash how did it turn out like this well it it wasn't genius. It was just that there was this wonderful extra flavor that, that transported it. So that's my answer is the salt larder because that's the, the heart of the book and of what I was trying to do, which was get pe give people a sense of, of the miraculous, of the transformative power of salt preserved ingredients in your cooking. And fish sauce being another one, of course, that I go on about in the book. 
Um, so that, yeah, that's the heart of it. And the others, you can improvise your own recipes. I mean, the recipes are there sort of to sort of entice you into using the salt larder and into thinking, oh, I guess I could do that. Hmm, I wonder what it would be like if I, you know, so it's an invitation to explore. I love that. And I, from the book so far, I've made a couple things. Mm -hmm. um, and one is your Eastern European uh -huh. brined tomatoes. And wow, they pack so much flavor. I think like that little bit of honey sort of yeah. rounds it out and you can just kind of have them on like a cheese board or in a salad or just and on their so own. Pretty. They're so they're pretty. So beautiful. It's really yeah. interesting with them. I, I experimented with honey and without honey and so on. And the honey was just necessary. Mm -hmm. It was really interesting. I mean, without perfectly fine, but with suddenly other things started to happen in the, in the mouth, you know, really. I agree. And I do a lot of different fermenting and honey is just an ingredient that I haven't mm -hmm. added to many of my ferments. So thank you for that. Now I'm going to um, and I love the salt larder section so much too. And I'm thinking of this for the home cook. I'm thinking like, how does one, obviously they, they get your book to start their home salt larder, but what would be sort of, you know, what, what levels are you going to beyond just having a box of kosher salt and, you know, a couple finishing salts in terms of a home cook creating this salt larder? Well, I would say the salt, kosher salt is not necessary because mm. kosher salt isn't kosher, right? It isn't necessarily pure either. So I would say you want pickling salt. So I, I'm going to start start with the start of your question. Yeah. Because pickling salt has nothing in it but, you know, sodium chloride and it hasn't got anti-caking agents and it hasn't got iodine in it. You know, it hasn't, anyway, it doesn't have the things that, for example, normal table salt has in it. And some of the kosher salts also do. So there's no point paying extra money for kosher salt. Get get pickling salt because it's actually what you want anyway. And there's fine and there's coarse. I tend to use the coarse, not very coarse. And then some finishing salts, in other words, flake salts, because they're just nice and they're pretty. And if you have, you know, flake salts from two or three different places, hey, you're traveling in your kitchen. You can have the, your local Jacobson, you can have some from up the coast, Vancouver Island sea salt, you can have Malden from England, but you could also have, for example, salt from Peru, you can have salt from Sicily, whatever. And it's a lovely thing to think, oh, and just be reminded of people in another place, right? And those salts are great as a, as a sort of finishing salt to sprinkle on a salad or for a little texture as you bite in at the end, not to be added as a seasoning in the middle of cooking, because you're wasting a relatively expensive product when it's just going to dissolve and become generic salt once it's blended in, right? So uh, that's what I'd say. And then for what to what to make, I think you know the the salted green onions are a really nice place to start because you have this jar of flavor. You chop scallions and then you mix them with salt, and then they sit in a jar, and then you can just reach for them. They're going to salt your soup, for example, they're also going to flavor it. So you can use them at the beginning as a sofrito. You can add them. You don't want to add any ordinary salt before you've used your salted scallions because they're going to season your dish somewhat. And then at the end, you can adjust with just salt, right? You, this is the thing. When you're using a salted ingredient in your cooking, you then need to hold back on the plain salt, on the seasoning until you're till at the end, you might need to adjust because usually the salted ingredient isn't gonna do the whole job of seasoning. 
but you can't really judge until you taste and you can't taste until it's done or until it's closer to done. So that's just the only, the, the, care, the thing to be careful with, but it's not a big deal. And you'll just find yourself using a lot less plain salt because you're using these salted ingredients. I love the salted lemons. They're easy to make and they're so beautiful in the jar. The, the red Hunan uh, chilies, which is basically you take a red cayenne chilies, which are not that hot, you know, and you chop them, <clears throat> keeping the seeds in, chop them in. And there's some beautiful pictures in the Richard Jung is the photographer and the beautiful pictures of the chilies. Uh, you chop them into sort of one inch lengths and mix them with some salt and leave them in a jar. And a week later, they've fermented. There's not very much salt. They're not hugely salty, just enough to prevent them going off but not enough to interfere with fermentation so again and then they keep forever they're beautiful and then you just put them out as a condiment like you'd put out i don't know mustard or or a little salsa or any kind of side paste so those are things to start with and then buy some fish sauce if you're not used to using it and and uh don't be afraid you know and and buy taste some soy sauces and if you're not using if you're not using soy sauce regularly, buy a couple and taste them because they, they taste quite different. And I just think they're useful. Chefs have used them for a long time and fish sauce. When fish sauce was still being viewed as ooh weird by a lot of people who are not Southeast Asian, which really went on until 20 years ago, embarrassingly. I mean, the people should be embarrassed, but anyway, whatever. Um, but chefs were already using it in soups and and giving extra lifts of flavor. So you don't want your seasoning, your salted ingredient to be front and center. You want it to be your secret weapon, you know. I mean, sometimes it's front and center, you know, in in if you're making like puttanesca, um, the, the pasta, which people probably know, but, you know, it's got anchovies and olives and it's just and capers. So there's all these salted ingredients it's not salty. It just is, it packs a punch. Of course, for people who don't like anchovies, they're saying, listening to this, but <laughs> really when they come together with others, I love anchovies, but when they come together with other things, they become this, they pack flavor, you know? So you can put anchovies into, there's a, a, a recipe with a, for slow cooked lamb and there's some anchovies in there. And it just, you think, oh, where did this extra flavor come from? And uh, you don't have to tell people there are anchovies in there, except some people are allergic to fish. So you do need to know if your guests are allergic to fish. But if you know they aren't, then you don't have to tell them about the anchovies. Because, <laughs> no, because they're a trigger for some people. Yeah. I don't know. Did they have an anchovy pizza when they were eight and think it was awful? And then they fled from them ever since. I don't know what it is. But for some people, they're really not a pleasure. And, you know, that's... It leaves more for the rest of us, but I feel badly for those people because it's, they're such a pleasure. Oh, they're so delicious. And what yeah. I love Naomi about those, I mean, not leaving the fish sauce aside because, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. like you can obviously make that at home. It's a little bit more advanced, yes. but the scallions, yeah. the chilies, yeah. the lemon, oh, salt, a knife, a jar, yeah. and yeah. some thyme. Yeah, T-I-M-E. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's it. You're not, uh, you're not looking at your watch in that time. You're just putting it away and saying, oh, in two weeks, I'll have a look and I'll have a taste. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't include a recipe for fish sauce because I thought that is a bridge too far. It's more advanced and technical. And if people want to go there, there's lots of books on sort of advanced fermentation techniques. There's a whole 
you know, community of people and online on Instagram, there's cultures, there's the cultures group and other people, but I just wanted people to get, to get started and, and get some confidence, right? Exactly. See legs kind of. Mm -hmm. Yes. I feel like your books are always so immersive and so rooted in travel. I'm thinking of Burma. I'm thinking of Taste of Persia. You write about so many different countries and their incredibly rich and varied culinary salt techniques, traditions, and recipes from Ethiopia to Japan to Morocco in The Miracle of Salt. I'm wondering, did you visit these places while you were working on the book? Um, with so many of us, you know, the past couple of years being so cooped up, I'd love to just hear about um, any of your travels. Uh, I got back from sort of Southeast Asia and the UK in early March of 2020, and then I stayed put. Um, and I had a book to finish, which was really lucky that I had a deadline, um, which was the end of March 2021. And, you know, the early pandemic, we all lost our footing a bit. I found I wasn't able to think with much clarity for a couple of months, at least. I read murder mysteries and stuff. But um, but then, oh, my gosh, I've got this deadline. I better get this book done. So I didn't, I was drawing only on what I'd done before. So this, there are a couple of places I would like to have gone to, Colima in Mexico, for example, and uh, and to Korea. And I didn't get to either place. And it's really interesting because in this book, it's immersion in a in a, the world of salt, which means that I'm always going to be just touching the the tip of it. I mean, you could spend a lifetime exploring salt stories and salt locations. But what I have there is um, like there's photographs from Lac Rose in Senegal. Um, well, I was in Senegal for the rice book in the late 90s. And so... And I went to Lac Rose, which is a small lake, and it's um, it's so saturated with salt that the salt sinks to the bottom of the of the lake. It's not very deep, and then the salt harvesters gather the crust from under the from the bottom of the lake and put it into boats. And anyway, and so I have pictures from there and and from, for example, Kutch from Gujarat in India, and that's from earlier travels. But I did get before the before the pandemic, starting on the project, I got to Spain to uh, the Salinas de Añana in Basque country. I got to Maras in Peru, which is near Cusco, an incredible physical environment with these, the salt it comes, it's not near the ocean at all. It's way up in the interior, not far from Cusco. So you're at 12,000 feet, 13,000 feet. And there's a salt spring. In other words, water coming out of the ground that's salty and up high and then it comes down the hill and so since before the time of the incas i was told by many people that local people then were they they evaporate that water the sun evaporates the water and then there's salt and they do that by having terraces down the hillside so it's like rice terraces i mean it's an amazing thing but instead of the green of rice terraces the soil is red and you're in this high elevation environment. It's just an amazing place. One of the most remarkable geographical places I've been, you know, and human places because there are people working it and they, each person in the village has a right to one or two salt ponds. And so it's a, it's a local endeavor now. It didn't used to be, it used to be colonial controlled and all that. Anyway, and then I got to Japan and the Japan trip was a really lucky one because I got to the Noto Peninsula, which is 
on the west coast of Japan. And, uh, and it's sort of a cutoff place. It's kind of a, like a thumb that sticks up north from the main island. And, and that's a place where there's a very old tradition of salt gathering. And so that has been revived. Some of it was is maintained, and then there's people doing more of it now. And it's also a place where people grow rice. So there's rice terraces on the land, and then and there's fishing, and they make fish sauce actually in Noto as well, probably because there's salt. I mean, they're salt gatherers. And um, so it's a kind of a rather special corner of Japan. And I learned a lot there. So that's probably, that was really, uh, it felt, there in Peru, I guess, felt especially lucky. I felt especially lucky to be able to get there for the book. Yeah. And for book festival listeners, I just want everyone to know that your books always include so many wonderful photos. And a lot of them are taken by you while you're traveling. Well, so there's, yeah. And in this book, there's, there's there's photographs of place to try and I wanted to anchor salt. Sure, we can all we can buy it in a box in the store, and that's great. And aren't we lucky? But to understand how salt has been hard work and um, and has required incredible innovation and creativity by people and hard labor all over the world, I wanted salt locations in the book. So those pictures, uh, salt location pictures, are mine, and then the there's a lot of food pictures in the book, way more than in my others. It's a big luxury. And they're taken by Richard Young, who's a wonderful American photographer who lives in London. So he, the editor said, well, why doesn't he shoot in your house? And, um, and yeah, we want, you know, lots of shots, lots of process shots, lots of, and I thought, wow, how are we going to do this? Um, Because, you know, every kitchen is, most kitchens are not ideal for shooting and he shoots with natural light. There was no, um, anyway, there were no lights, but, uh, but it was a beautiful two weeks in the second half of September last year. We were really lucky with the weather and uh, there was a food stylist and a food stylist assistant and, you know, prop stylist. So the kitchen was jammed with people. And, and I think that really makes the book very accessible because it's not shot in a sterile place. It's, you know, it's it's in a kitchen, um, and and I'm hoping that that it also that also makes it reassuring. You know what I mean? Oh it's yeah, fancy. You know, it's not kind of glammed up at all. In fact, very much not glammed up. Well, and I love the photos. They're different photos of you know pantry photos, and it's very inspiring. Just the sheer volume of things in jars. I love mm-hmm. that. It's inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of all of the delicious recipes in The Miracle of Salt, how many recipes are there in the book, Naomi? I'm sure that it's hard to calculate because there are lots of sub recipes too. I don't know, really. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's I a mean, large, I feel like 125 or 100, yeah. 150. I don't, it's, yes, it depends how you count them as well. It depends. I mean, I think yeah. The recipes that were for me new, I mean, there were things which I knew I, ha- which I had or recipes and I, I talk about friends who told me about this recipe, the the Polish recipe, for example, for sauerkraut soup, which is so delicious. But there were also recipes I wanted to figure out. One of them, um, I'm not strong on sweets. I don't have a big sweet tooth. But I realized quite late on, oh my gosh, this is a book about salt. And I have to have ice cream. 
Because remember, ice cream makers used to use salt to chill the water because salt, salt water freezes at a lower temperature. So if you add salt to ice, it takes it down to a lower temperature, which enables the ice cream to, to firm up. Anyway, but now, of course, there's ice cream makers and we don't have to use salt and so on. But I thought, well, it's really a blank. I have to do this. And then I thought, well, I, I'm not a huge ice cream eater. I thought, I want to have an ice cream that I've never had before that seems unusual. How, you know, so that they're just sort of invented. And I'm sure other people have made these, but I've never come across them. So there's one that's candied ginger ice cream. And, and it is so delicious because the miso, there's miso as a bit of savory in there. And it just, and it's a custard ice cream. It's a full French style ice cream. It just is unbelievable how the flavors come together. So it made me appreciate ice cream much more. And it made me realize that the difference between kind of ordinary, if I can put it that way, ice cream and homemade or thoughtfully made ice cream or, um, you know, fancy ice cream, is just a world of difference. It's a, anyway, so it's, it's fun also to eat ice cream where you, you know what cream you used and you know what milk you used. Like you're, you're really aware of, of what went into it. And, and that there aren't any other weird additives or stabilizers or whatever's. And I couldn't believe how easy it was. That was the thing. Like, ice cream, that's a world apart. That's other people's world. No, 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 actually, it's very doable. I borrowed an ice cream maker from a friend of one of my kids and you know, I plugged it in and you know, there I was. It was. So I think that's the thing we often, I do, but I think I'm assuming other people do. We make sort of notions about how difficult this or that might be you know like pastry I remember working on home baking um, uh, a book from about 20 years ago and thinking oh yeah my mother always said she's long dead but she always said oh yeah oh she has a cool hand or she has a light hand with pastry talking about somebody else and I'd think well that's never going to be me you know so pastry was an intimidating thing that I never tried because I thought that's too hard, or that takes a special touch that I'm sure I wasn't born with. Nonsense, nonsense, absolutely. You know, just go ahead and try. But we often, I find I still need reminding of that. You know, yeah, just give it a try. Um, and, and it's really wonderful, it's magical how we discover these new areas that we, you know, hadn't explored before. And and it's, it's just, um, it's a lovely opening out of the world, I think. I agree. And I feel like you're in the kitchen with home cooks on the page. It feel, It's very reassuring. And there's lots of personal details that you divulge and kind of, it feels it's not, your hand isn't being held, but it's just really nice guidance. I'm glad oh. it feels that way to you. Cause I, I like to think of it as a conversation in the kitchen that yes. we're together doing it, you know, kind of. Mm-hmm. And going back to that miso, those miso chocolate chip cookies are so <laughs> delicious. They're sort of, they're almost, I guess, shortbread and they have that dark chocolate chips in them and just a little bit of miso inside the cookie. But also you have this sort of cream oh, miso wash that you wash. put on top and that helps brown them. And mm-hmm. I highly recommend those to everyone. Um, and easy to make, right? I mean, they're just very so- easy. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, they came together really easily. And the nice thing about those two, and I like all of your tips on sort of, oh, you can do this ahead of time and leave this in the fridge, or you can divide these tasks. That's very helpful. Um, for me, I had a busy day. I put them together one night. I baked them off the next day. They were in the fridge. They were perfectly chilled. So that's really nice. Mm -hmm. um, so in the introduction to the miracle of salt, you write, as I progressed into recipe explorations, I realized that a book about salt in, is inevitably also a book about fermentation. It's the careful use of salt that permits us to preserve food safely through fermentation. Um, and myself as co-founder of this Portland fermentation festival in town, um, I love all things fermented. And I'm wondering, have you, has this been a lifelong love of fermented foods? And when you, when did you start with various fermentation recipes? Well, I've, I've always made bread, you know, so there's, there's step one, right? Um, and that's a fermented food that um, many people find intimidating to make. Fewer now that people got into bread making during the pandemic, but still um, it's sort of awe-inspiring when you realize this simple mixture is suddenly alive, you know, this uh, flour, salt, and water, and what? What? <laughs> How did those critters get in there? But it's just magic. And there's a fermented ingredient that I put into the Burma book um, that's really uh, to a now. It's, a, it's basically soybeans that sit and sort of ferment naturally. And then they, they're cooked and salted and then pressed into discs and they, and they, after they've fermented and they dry and then it's like portable, it's like a precursor to soy sauce. It's a, it's a portable fermented bean. Um, and they're used in Northern Thailand and, and the Shan States in Burma and, and by other people too in that region. And so that, that was my, I guess, first contact with making from scratch something, um, something trans that was transformed, entirely transformed. I knew, you know, I'd seen black beans and stuff, but, you know, a black bean sauce, it's not so transformative as this thing of the action of, I mean, the black beans are already fermented, but to start with a raw organic soybean and end up with a fermented dry disc that's loaded with flavor that you can use as a base for curries. It's a great way of making vegetarian food in, in, in the, in Southeast Asia, because it's it's not fish sauce, but it's giving you the same umami. Um, that's where it was. But I, I'm not organized enough, and I lead too erratic a life in and out to have the kind of uh, consistent um, tenacity that it takes to do to explore long fermented to be sophisticated fermenter is what I want to say. So Kirsten Shockey, for example who you even find her on Instagram, she's doing all these things. And Ken Fornataro, there's those people who are doing incredible explorations of, and very sophisticated and also daring and, you know, very interesting fermentations. I'm not a person who wants to sit note-taking and comparing 15 different ones over a year. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try things and enjoy them and I'm going to move forward into them. But, um, but I, um, and I, and I love cheese, but I don't want to be in the kitchen and in the lab all the time. I want to be in the world and seeing how the world relates and agriculture and food relates to the kitchen, but I don't want to be just in the kitchen. 
I, it's a long, funny answer, but I think that's the, that's, yeah, I think I said what I meant to say. I love that. And I, um, Kirsten's a fermentation friend of mine and, um, I really enjoy that rye bread miso recipe and I'm uh-huh. very intrigued and want to try that myself. It's really, it's really very delicious. It's very interesting. And it's a little bit of work because you dry the bread out first and then you have to knead it back into moistness. You're drying it out because you're saying how much of this essential ingredient do I have? You don't want to, you don't want the weight of the water to affect your salt proportion. So you start with the dried version of the bread. So that means you toast it dry, then you weigh it um, and you cut off the crust and then you weigh it. And then you need moisture back into it to, to get to where you need to be. I'm making it sound way too difficult. It's just interesting because handling the bread, the dried bread and kneading it back into life was like a reconnection with it. It was, it was just fascinating. You know, it was a post bread process but um, but I'm so interested in grains and bread and and um, and whole grains and I'm not interested in white flour at all. I've become completely uninterested in white flour. So it was just a wonderful connection. Yeah, I think you'll find it really delicious. And it's so interesting how it's not the same as a soybean uh, miso. You know, it's it's just a different a different flavor. And then I, in Japan, I had some wheat misos and it made with wheat koji and, and, um, and then wheat as their basic um, ingredient um, at the, at the incredible miso store in, in Tokyo. And again, wow, that was an, I couldn't say it tastes of wheat. It didn't, but it was distinctively different from, you know, from the soy misos or the rice misos. Yeah. And I just want to call back to a previous question, the the last question in which you were saying, oh, well, I'm not rooted enough. I'm always traveling and that's why I can't do the longer ferments. And we're so glad and thank you because that is what's fueling a lot of your books. And it's such a nice, I feel like this book is is travelogue as much as it is recipes too in so many different places that you're exploring and then that we vicariously also get to explore. I feel like I have a lot more questions and I'm wondering before I ask that, because we only get to you for so long, is there anything in particular that I didn't ask you that you're really wanting to share about the miracle of salt for the Portland Book Fest folks and the archive project? I guess uh, the only thing I guess is, is in a general way, I think uh, working on this book has been a reminder as, as working on say the rice book or the flatbread book is a reminder that there's almost the most to learn out of the simplest, the apparently simplest ingredients. And um, so focusing in on whatever it is, but some essential is, I mean, there's this world of human endeavor behind all of these foods. Food can basically be a lens to understanding, you know, history and, you know, environmental issues and social, social justice issues, but also just to understanding the efforts made by cooks in places all over the world through millennia to, to keep their families alive, you know, and that's really moving to me. That's really something. So 
that's why I, I'm I'm very happy to see the book out because I think I hope to share my sense of wonder with other people. I guess that's what I I want to say. Yeah, I love that. Can I ask one more question? Sure. So I already went back to the introduction, but I want to again the go back to the beginning of the book. Um, the first couple sentences of the intro read. Salt is as familiar as water and the air we breathe, and it's just as essential to us. Salt is our most important ingredient, the only food that we all need. These days we are able to take salt for granted. And I think that really hooks the reader immediately and um, that essential yet taken for granted part. Um, you obviously write a lot more deeply about that, but I'm wondering if you could just talk a, a bit about that essential yet taken for granted bit? Well, I think we've learned, you know, like clean air, you know, you, you guys have had your smoke, you mm -hmm. know, you, you had clean air and it's, it's essential. And then when you, when you lose it, when it's in short supply, whatever, oh my gosh, you know, or it's, or it's like health and then you don't have it. Um, you even, you get a cold and you forget what it felt like to feel perfectly well, you know, and in a way, with this book, I wanted to remind people what it must have felt like for people when salt was hard to get, not to sort of feel pangs of suffering, but just to sort of think, oh, yes, this, this, this ordinary thing, if we didn't have it, you know, if it wasn't there on the grocery store shelf, whatever, how would we manage, you know, if, if we were back in the farm, how would we manage? Where would we get our salt? Where's the nearest supply of salt in nature near where I live? What, what does it mean, the geography of salt? You know, how did, how did those people in, I don't know, southern Louisiana, for example, the cattle culture of people in eastern Romania or lots of places where salt came out of the ground in a salt spring, how did they get salt out of that salt water? Well, they had to know how to make pottery enough to hold the water so that they could put it over a fire so that the water could boil, evaporate away. Well, that's really, somebody had to figure that out. And I just think this, it, it enables, it has enabled me to travel in my imagination, travel in time in a way that other books, I'm trying to deal with what I see in front of me and trying to understand what why does why do people in Burma love this and what's going on and how do they make it and why do they make it? But in this case, we can we can connect to through salt, we can connect to our forebears and other people's forebears and try and visualize what it was like for them or what it was like to be on those salt caravans crossing the Sahara. And um I just find that I find that really exciting. Just it's another way of enlarging my world to be able to travel not just in space but to travel in my imagination in time and space and I love imagining you from spring of 2020 till your deadline your manuscript delivery spring of 2021 being just so immersed in all of that and how absolutely yeah a bit and a bit you know a bit I mean, highly anxious, actually. I remember at one point a friend called me in late October and said, how's it going? And I said, I don't want to talk about it. And she said, yes, but but how's it going? And I said, 
actually, I have to hang up now because I really don't want to even, I am too anxious to even consider how it's going, you know. Um, and I had to repair that friendship later. I sent her a note and said, I'm just really sorry, but I, I'm just a little fragile on this subject because I'm really anxious and I hate being late with things. My my issue. So um, so then I sort of got through that and thought, okay, I am going to be able to get it done in time. But it's it's so huge. And so beating a subject like this into shape, not a very pretty image, but you know, sort of realizing, oh, I can't talk about that. And there's too much there. And no, that's, I can't go there. And, you know, I, I thought there might be, I have, might have salt um, metaphors and expressions, you know, saltiness and, you know, all of those things. And I thought, no, I don't even have room for that. Just, I just have to, let's be practical and connect with salt as a tool of survival and a tool for flavor and let's, you know, let's just get that done as well as we can, I said to my other self, you know, and so, and that's really, but yeah, that 2020 was pretty pressure cookery, I have to say, and, uh, yeah. and right through to the spring of 21. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have one last question for you, Naomi. I know I said that the last one was the last, but that was the penultimate. So I do have a last question. Great word, penultimate. Yes, it uh-huh. is. Um, so in terms of the home cook with the miracle of salt, they have it in their kitchen and they're flipping through it. And there's so many wonderful recipes. What are a couple tried and true beloved recipes for you that you think um, are sort of a, a nice entree into the book? Something so, that you'd recommend? So are you thinking about a dish to make or are you thinking about a salt larder ingredient because maybe each, maybe one of each, you know, as I said before, the salted lemons are really great. I mean, they really work so well and they're so beautiful. You really love the brine tomatoes, but only if it's tomato season, it's not worth doing if it's not tomato season. Right. Uh, the cucumber pickles. Oh, yes. Really wonderful. And it's a 24 hour thing only. I mean, you do them and you wait and then they're available to you 24 hours later. They're just fabulous. Uh, I got the recipe from my friend Gord, who's, who was reproducing a recipe his mother used to make. He said, I didn't ask her for it though. So I felt my way, but this, I, this is, you know, anyway, I took uh, instruction. And so they're Japanese style uh, cucumber pickles. So that's, that's an, a really nice one. They're not dill. They're not vinegary. They're just uh, wonderful. And I guess for a, for a recipe to make, if you're a baker, you might want to make the pisse à la dire, which is a, a Provençal tart with olives and anchovies on it and lots of cooked onions on top of it. But if you're not, if you just for a quick, easy supper, something with the black bean sauce, I think the, the duck breast with uh, bitter greens and black bean sauce is really delicious and so easy. So you can buy black bean sauce, but also I urge you to make it because it's it's one of those things, once you have, I realized I needed to make a triple recipe because once I have it in my fridge, I always want to have a jar of it. It keeps in the fridge forever. And then it's, uh, you know, there's nothing going on. What am I going to make for supper? I've got this not very interesting, whatever, chicken. And I've got these vegetables that might maybe have seen better days. Oh, I can do a stir fry with black bean sauce and it's going to just leap off the plates into people's mouths. They're going to be so happy. And they're going to say, wow, this is so delicious. So 
there's a pitch for for a recipe but you know there's whatever strikes people the pasta recipes are fun too and not difficult i'm excited to make the black bean sauce and have all yeah, those I think opportunities really, yeah. yeah you want a, you want a wide mouth jar so you can take nice pictures <laughs> Thank you so much, Naomi, for including Portland and our annual Portland Book Festival on your The Miracle of Salt book tour. It has been such an immense honor, um, as well as a lovely and salty education. And I just thank you so much for your wisdom and your time and all the cheers to The Miracle of Salt. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Liz Crane and Naomi Duguid. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This episode was part of a podcast exclusive series for Portland Book Festival 2022. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.